Uh, it is good for me, and I hope it's good for you guys, but it's good for me to be here today, uh, to be standing with you, um, and uh, with the task in charge of delivering the word and message today. Uh, my wife and I, many of you know, uh, recently uh, caught COVID, and uh, you know, it was was not a pleasant experience for sure. I, uh, I know some have it uh, lesser Maybe the, the symptoms and what you struggle through, and some have it more uh, serious, and I'm not sure where I fall on that, but it wasn't, it wasn't a pleasant experience is what I could share, and I hope I don't have to go through that again. Um, but, you know, you, you wake up, and you start feeling you, you, you've got some symptoms, but you don't know if it's, a, if it's a common cold or a flu or is it just allergies, you know? A lot of us struggle through allergies. And so the only way you can figure out what you're dealing with, if you've caught COVID or not, is you've got a test, right? There's a test uh, that you can take, and it's a simple process. You know, the government's mailing them out for free. And when those two bars show up, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> I actually caught COVID, right, after a couple of years of remaining free through all despite all of the different exposures, um, and you're like, well, this time, you know, it, we caught it. And, you know, I only share that because often we think of tests, you know, maybe we, we associate tests with our childhood, and it's a negative thing, you know, it's, it's stressful, taking tests, taking standardized tests, SATs, math tests, whatever, and we think, oh, tests are horrible. But in a way, tests are designed to help us to see where we're at, right? Have we actually learned what we were supposed to learn? Uh, do, do we actually have COVID or not? And there's a positive aspect to tests. It helps us to discern what we're going through in life. You know, a few couple weeks ago, Pastor Jun uh, was able to speak from really the first couple, the first three verses of this chapter. And he talked about how it was God's gift of love to us. And how amazing that gift of love was or is to be claimed by God as his children. To, to, to take on that title for ourselves. I'm a child of God. And what I think John is trying to do here, because the, the, the setting for which this letter was written into, there was a group of people that it appears left the church. And you can see this in chapter 2, and you can see that this sort of, maybe you want to, I don't know, whatever you want to label them, you know, uh, they left and there was a few things. They, they denied, seemingly denied that Jesus was the Christ. It seemed like they were trying to lead others astray as well. They were trying to deceive others. And ultimately, maybe the context of what we're seeing here in chapter 3 Maybe one of their big claims was, look, it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter whether you sin or not. It doesn't matter whether you pursue righteousness or not. It really doesn't matter. And it seems like this letter is speaking into that situation and saying, all right, here's the truth. The letter of John is very concerned with truth versus lies. So here's the truth. And maybe in a way, 
this letter presents to us a test. Here's a test. Now, it's not that, don't get, don't get this letter wrong. It's not that this letter is saying, this is how you become a child of God. It's clearly right there in the first three verses that that is a gift of love from God himself. So this is not a how to become a child of God. We know that God is the one who makes us his children. But if you're not sure, if there's something that you want to, maybe this is a way for us to examine ourselves, to see where we're at, to understand our hearts and how we're living our lives. And yes, that it does matter. So we'll jump right into it, this sort of test um, or information that uh, John has given to us. And look, right away in verse 4, what we're going to talk about is the nature of sin. All right? So there's going to be kind of a chain of arguments. And so if you could do your best to just follow along with, uh, along with the thinking here and the, the logical uh, uh, steps right here. First step is, all right, let's understand the nature of sin. All right, so what is sin? And here he says clearly, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices what? Lawlessness. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now on this verse, many commentators, many preachers will talk about how one of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians, one of the bigger mistakes we make uh, as a church, is we often fail to understand sin for what it really is. We like to minimize what sin is. Even this idea of lawlessness doesn't always quite hit home. Because to, if, if, we're, if we're honest, we, we do break laws. There are laws such as the speed limit, right? We'll break the speed, no parking. Uh, you know, some of us, we don't believe in, you know, if there's a spot, look, I'm going to park there, right? Um, I, I, I have a funny story of when, I, I, when my daughter was younger and I wanted her, uh, to show her where, you know, Susan and I went to, to school and college. Just, a, you know, a part of getting to know your parents more, I guess. And so I took her to the UCLA campus. And, you know, we're walking around the campus. And one of my favorite memories of, of being a student there was uh, Poly Pavilion, right? My senior year was, was the national championship year. And it was a lot of fun for me. And that was, you know, just a fun part of being in college then. And, and, um, but the, the building was locked up and, you know, it's, it's off season or whatever, and no one's supposed to be in there. But I found a door that was ajar. And I was like, well, let me give that a try. And look, it opens up to Poly Pavilion. And look, there's no one around. Sophia, let's go check out Poly Pavilion. And she almost looked like she was going to have an anxiety attack. Like, no, we, look, we're not supposed to go in there. I was like, no, 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 come on. <laughs> Those rules, it's, look, it's, you know, we can go in. What's the worst that'll happen? They'll tell us to leave, right? And so, yeah, I'm like, look at this glorious building. Look at that wooden floor. How amazing is that floor? Some of basketball's greatest players ever played on that, on that floor, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? And for her, this means nothing, right? She's just like, are we supposed to be in here, Dad? <laughs> is it okay? I'm like, look, it's okay, in a way, I was saying, I'm above the law <laughs> of, you know, of UCLA Poly Pavilion, right? 
And in a way, that concept of lawlessness, does that hit home for us? Um, uh, Stephen Cole talks about how John may actually be talking about even more than just that because he emphasizes this practice of sinning is also practicing lawlessness. So that maybe what he's referring to is not just this occasional breaking of something, ah, what's the big deal, right, of a little of a law here and there, but one who is in revolt against God. That sin is nothing but rebellion against God. That sin at its core is much worse than breaking of a commandment. It is to live in rebellion against the one who created you as well as redeemed you. If you think about it then, it is actually doing what Satan wanted us to do from the very beginning in the Garden of Eve. It is a life of saying, I am the lawmaker. I am the one who says, this is okay or this is not okay. That I can decide for myself which laws I should keep and which laws I can live in open rebellion against. That I have enough wisdom to decide, look, this is not a serious law. The law about murder, about theft, about adultery, okay, those are serious laws. So I'm going to keep those as best as I can. But there's a group of sub-laws that aren't as important to God, obviously. And that's why those are okay to break. I can live in pride. I can live a life of greed. Or I can live a life of fantasies. Or I can, you know what, make myself God because I have enough wisdom to do that. And I can practice that as much as I want. And I'm fine. So if we understand maybe the nature of sin first, then in verse 5, what he says is, but look at the nature of Christ, Second, all right, secondly. So first, here's the nature of sin. Now, verse 5, look at the nature of Christ. Who is Christ? Well, look, he came to do what? To take away sins. He came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So if we look at the nature of Christ and we ponder that for a second, we see that he is the opposite of that. You can say it any way you want to say it. He obviously hates sin. He came from heaven to earth to do one thing. Take away sin. When we understand this mission of Christ, for him... Uh, taking away sins, he does it at a few different levels. He takes away what? The penalty of our sins, right? That's what we think of most often. The price of sin, right? Uh, the cost of sin was eternal death. And we understand that he came away, that he came to remove that. And he accomplished that on the cross. But he also came to take away the power of sin. So that we are no longer enslaved, living a life of obedience to sin. We're free from that. And not only did he come to remove the power of sin, but he came to remove the presence of sin. We see, uh, and you can look at this, but in verse 3, uh, verses 2 and 3, we see that there's a future hope that we have to be like 
Christ. And that happens obviously later. But later we will, we will be like him in the sense of purity. Free from sin. Sinless. Does that happen in this life? No. But that is our future. That is our hope. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin is taken away in Christ. And again, here's a reminder. Clearly, that is not something we can do on our own. Right? This is not a how-to on how to take away the penalty of sin. On how to take away the power of sin. On how to take away the presence of sin. That is what Christ does. Why is he the one who does that? Because he is the only one who can claim this. There was no sin. There is no sin. So then if you consider the nature of, of, of sin, and then you consider the nature of Christ, then in verse 6, there's this powerful statement. Then no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Right? See, you, you, you see the steps he's taking there? Here's the nature of sin. This is what sin is. Then you say, here's the nature of Christ. This is what his mission was. And then you say, so if we are abiding in him, if we are abiding in him, no one who, keeps on, uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now what does John mean here? Does this mean that if we're Christian, we would never sin? Does this mean if we sin, we must not be Christian? Does John contradict himself here? Because what does John say in, in chapter 1, verses 8, and ten, 8 through 10? Let's look at that together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Remember, truth versus lies. That's a big theme of this letter. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Sounds like two very different stances on sin. On one hand, doesn't it sound like John is saying here, look, if you say you're not sinning, dude, you're, you're a liar. Everyone's a sinner. But here in chapter 3, he says, if we abide in him and keep on sinning, hmm, we clearly don't know him. We clearly have not seen him. So does he contradict himself? Well, we remember again that he was probably responding to a group of people who were spreading lies. And he wanted to come up with a forceful rebuttal to that group. And I think that's important for us to remember, that he's making a point about truth versus lies. And in a way, then, he's also giving the church a test. Here's something you should not forget. Here's how we can sort of examine ourselves. But even if you look at the grammar, I think there's something that, that should help us. When, he look, when we look at the verb tense, all right, does not sin means what? So even the ESV translates it there as what? No one who keeps on sinning. Keeps 
on sinning. Different uh, translations will, talk, uh, will, will describe it a little differently, right? Continues to sin or keeps on sinning. And so what we're clearly dealing with here is this present tense, which is talking about this ongoing, habitual, unrepentant life of sin. Uh, John Piper says this, quote, in view of all his insistence that Christians do sin, right, chapter 1, we can't take these verses here in chapter 3 to mean Christians don't sin at all. We should take them to mean that Christians don't go on sinning without conflict and confessions. Christians see it, hate it, confess it, and fight it. And they do so with increasing vigilance as they grow up into Christ. Spurgeon says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. So I think a good way of understanding what John is saying here is, look, if we know Christ, if we remember Christ, and if we abide in Christ, we cannot keep uh, just living this life of where we're saying, look, it doesn't matter whether we sin or not. We can do whatever we want. We can decide for ourselves what, 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 what's what's." A law we can break or not. We can do whatever we want. It's okay. And we will just keep on continuing to sin without remorse, without a battle, without confession, without fighting. For John, that doesn't make sense. If we understand, truly understand what sin is. And if we go on, I, and I think to further his point, he says, look. Let me, let me explain something to you. So he, little children, and he doesn't mean it in a derogatory way like, hey, you know, little child, let me help you to understand. I think there's a, a term, it's a term of endearment here. He loves his church that he's talking to. Look, let no one deceive you, verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the... For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he's continuing in that very logical argument. Look, the nature of sin is this. This is the mission of Christ. So how can we, if we're abiding in Christ, continue to keep on sinning? Look, if you look at where what is the nature of the devil? The nature of the devil, he's the one who wants to keep on sinning. The devil has been the one who's been sinning from the very beginning. And not only that, he is the one who wants us to keep on sinning. So he makes a very strong point in verse 8. Look, if you want to live that life where you don't care about your lawlessness, you know, you, don't, you can't give, it's not even worth your time. You're not going to fight it. Not going to battle against it. Whatever. Well, it's, 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 it's a harsh argument, but he says this. Well, that's what people of the devil do. God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He says, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
For God's seed abides in him. Now, this is very interesting to me because earlier he said if, if we abide in Christ. But now he talks about, I'll admit, it's, it's difficult to maybe exactly grasp what is being said here, right? Something of God abides in us. Most people think that God's seed here that abides in us can, is referring to one of two things, either God's word or the Holy Spirit. I think, uh, you know, I'm in agreement with the ESV uh, study Bible, which uh, says, look, there's a way to understand this in, uh, as, as both the Word and the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says in the study Bible, look, God's seed, all right, whether it's the Bible or the Word, well, both of these ideas are likely intended here. In other words, because the Word is present in the believer's heart through the work of the Spirit, the believer cannot keep on sinning. So even God's word resides in us. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit, which resides in us, abides in us. Verse 10, by this it is evident, right? Remember we talked about tests? By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I think the temptation may be for, for you and I to sit here and think, oh my gosh, look. Whew, I've got some sins in my life. You know, like habitual, ongoing, continuing sin. Oh yeah, okay. You know, how many of us grew up in the church and how many of us have been dealing with the same sins for whatever, whatever, what is it, five years, ten years, twenty years? How many of us have repented to just come back and get sucked up into it again and then we repent again and then go back to it again, repent it again and go back to it again? So is this, is this, what we're talking about here, habitual sin. So what do we need to do? Man, I don't want to be a child of the devil. I want to be a child of God. So what do I do? Man, I got I to gotta go home and do this and do that. And here's a list of the sins I've got to get rid of. And I'm not trying to discourage that. But I want to give us something that I think, uh, as I wrap up, should help us. Hopefully. Number one, I think it's important to remember that we are declared to be God's children, not because, not because we were so sinless, but because God loved us. Amen? So we are declared his children, not because, you know, God saw some ability within us or God saw some future within us that, oh, look, here's, a, here's, a, here's someone who's going to love me or here's someone who's not going to commit a lot of sins. Look, it was his love that claimed us to be his children. And because we are his children, his love and his forgiveness is steadfast and it does not end. Meaning, God will not one day look at you if you're his child and say, you know what? This is your last chance. If you do that one more time, 
you are out. You're no longer part of my family. You're part of the devil's family. The Bible is consistent in reminding us that the forgiveness of God and the love of God is hard for us to even imagine and fathom and understand because it is so great. His love is greater than our sin, and he is a God who forgives. So remember this, he will not run out of patience with us. He will not cease to love us. He will not cease to forgive us. What does he say in chapter 1, verse 9, that if we do what? Confess our sins, what will he do? Forgive us. Amen? I think it is of Satan's doing and strategy that he wants Christians to think that somehow God will stop loving us. That somehow God will stop forgiving us. That somehow we can do something that is greater than his love for us and he will cast us out and he will turn his back on us. No, no, and no. God turned his back on his son one time on the cross so that he would never turn his back on us ever. Amen. Christ went through it so that we don't have to go through that. That is the gospel. And we should never forget that. Even as we struggle with sin. Number two, I think we have to remember that we must place our hope in Christ. Verses two and three. It wasn't part of our passage today. Pastor John went over it uh, two weeks ago. But we should put our hope in Christ. If you put your hope in yourself, in your ability to somehow be greater than everything, that somehow you are so strong, you're going to do this and that and this and that and this and that, and that will make you worthy of heaven. That will make you worthy of that title, child of God. I think you're going to be frustrated by how many times you fail if you haven't already been frustrated. Third thing, I think what we should focus on, verse 6, abiding in him. Living in him. Loving him. Serving him. And loving others. If you focus on that, I think slowly, naturally, things will start to come into place. I've shared this many times, but, you know, when you love your spouse and there's something that upsets or hurts your spouse and they struggle with it, if you love your spouse, you know, and you, you see that pain or whatever in their lives, then, yeah, you're, you're going to just naturally want to change, right? As we grow in love for Christ... We're going to serve him. We're going to follow him. We're going to understand him. Now, for some of us, maybe right now at this moment, you feel like you're a bigger sinner than ever. You don't feel close to him. You feel disconnected. Maybe you're struggling to read the Bible. Maybe you're struggling to feel anything when you pray. Maybe you come to church and you, it's, it's just... I don't know, you know, you never leave here feeling something. 
Maybe you think, man, something must be really, really wrong with me. So far away. I'll never forget this. In fifth grade, uh, you know, I was, my parents put me into a Christian private school and it, for a few years. It was, it was interesting. Uh, but one of the things we had was every, I think it was Tuesday, we had to all go to chapel. And it was done by grades. And teachers would take turns sharing in chapel, right? Can you imagine doing that as a teacher, right? Not only would you have to do lesson preps on math or something, but if it was your turn, you also had to prep a, like a little devotional and get up in front of the whole grade and, 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 and lead, lead us uh, during chapel. And there was one uh, teacher. He later became my fifth grade teacher. He was sharing this little illustration about looking into a mirror. And he said when he looks at a mirror and it's kind of dark in the room, he says, you know what, my skin looks perfect. But the minute you open the window or pull back the shades or whatever and light starts streaming in, there's more light in the room. So then you start to see all the imperfections. You start to see the pimples, whatever, the scars, you know, everything. It just becomes, and he's like, look, it has, it's not that your face all of a sudden changed in that instance. He says, it's the light. And he was trying to illustrate how when God comes into our life, right, all of a sudden we see things that we didn't see before. We begin to understand how this is certain things that we're doing is not pleasing to God. How there are certain things that we were doing then before we may never have ever even thought about it. But now we think, oh man, maybe this is displeasing to him. And so sometimes we struggle to really see the growth in our lives because we feel far away. I want to just encourage all of you today brothers and sisters in Christ, that if we abide in him and let his light really shine into our lives, yes, we may see more. We may see our heart for where it's at, and we may struggle with that, but I think that's the process of becoming more and more like Christ. To understand him more, to know him more, to love him more, to put our hope in him. And never, ever forget, never, ever forget, that his love is unchanging. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we confess, man, we are sinners through and through. We struggle, and often it's the same thing we're struggling with over and over again. And we get to passages like this that we read today and looked at together today, and we know and understand that you came to remove sin, to take away our sins, that you hate sin, and yet we struggle with it. So we come to you and we say, Lord, we need your help, that you have the power, the ability to take away our sins, and we know it's going to be a process. Lord, help us, lead us, guide us, help us to love you more. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.